Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 157. Today's topic is DSA's Green New Deal, Part 11. So we've been talking about DSA's Green New Deal for 10 episodes, and now we're on the 11th. DSA is Democratic Socialist of America, one of the more dynamic organizations on the American left. And this discussion is well worth the trip, well worth the time it takes to study and talk through the whole thing, because the Green New Deal is a chance of a lifetime. In fact, it's an unprecedented opportunity in history to expand rights to extend to everyone and not just a privileged few. In America, we are taught that we are the leaders in world democracy, that we were pioneers in democracy. And there's some truth in that, but there's two sides to everything. And American democracy has a dark side. If you want to know about the dark side of our democracy then I suggest you email me at info at theclimatereport.net and I want to give you a playlist of episodes that I've done about Latin America. I've done several episodes on Venezuela, one episode on Cuba, and three episodes on Latin America. And we go through that and we separate truth from fiction. So anyway, we have a democracy of sorts, but most Americans would agree that we have a limited democracy and that money plays a key role, and to the extent that you have money, you have control of our democracy, and to the extent that you don't have money, which is 90% of us, then you have little or no control over our so-called democracy. So the Green New Deal is an opportunity to change all that. And there are different versions of the Green New Deal. There's one that is pending in Congress right now. There's a Green New Deal that was promulgated by the Green Party, And it's important to study all of these because even the Democrats in Congress right now are doing very little. Maybe 1% of the people in Congress, maybe 5 out of the over 500 people in Congress are seriously pushing this forward. So if it's going to happen, it's going to be because we citizens take it seriously, study it, and get behind it. If we do that, we'll be participating in activism, the three pillars of which are educate, organize, and agitate. So we're doing the educational part of activism right now. This program is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speaker and not the station. To the extent that I mention any people or organizations in this program, I'm giving my own opinions and not theirs. For example, I'm not the official spokesperson of Democratic Socialists of America. I'm just giving my reaction to their document. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. And if you enjoy this content, I invite you to find, to go to theclimatereport.net online, theclimatereport.net, to find more episodes, playlists, videos, and my blog. So the DSA's Green New Deal has seven principles We were on principle number three when we left off last time, but let's read in a nutshell. Here are the seven principles. 
Number one, decarbonize the economy fully by 2030. Number two, democratize control over major energy systems and resources. Number three, center the working class in a just transition to an economy of societal and ecological care. Decommodify survival by guaranteeing living wages, health care, child care, housing, food, water, energy, public transit, a healthy environment, and other necessities for all. Number five, reinvent our communities to serve people and planet, not profit. Number six, demilitarize, decolonize, and strive for a future of international solidarity and cooperation. And number seven, redistribute resources from the worst polluters with just and progressive taxes on the rich, on big corporations, and on dirty industry, as well as by diverting funds away from policing, prisons, and our government's bloated military budget. So that's a snapshot of each of the seven principles. The actual language is more extended. I'm giving you a sentence for each one. But each principle has, you know, one or two or three paragraphs to it. So let's go to where we left off when we were talking about principle number three. In principle number, in previous episodes, we covered items A through F under principle G. That's my numbering system. Uh, Excuse me, we covered A through F in principle number three. Now let's go to item G. We are going to empower workers with stronger labor protections and rights to collectively organize. So the United States has probably the weakest union laws in the entire industrialized world. We have been trained to believe that unions are an enemy of prosperity. But I would argue that unions are the friend of prosperity. In the past, some unions have been corrupt, but you can say that about any organization. You can say that about government. You can say that about nonprofits. You can say that about corporations. So it doesn't do any good to dismiss all unions because some in the past have been corrupt. But one positive effect of unions, one of many positive effects of unions, is that if you have two workers, one is making $15 an hour in a non-union job and the other is making $30 an hour in a union job, then that worker that has a union job is making $15 more per hour and they're going to spend more of that in the local economy. I would argue that the existence of unions works to the benefit of everyone, including non-union workers. Let's go on to item H, where it says, We will promote worker-owned and worker-controlled cooperatives and enterprises at all levels of the economy. Now, I want to preface by saying, if you want to learn more about worker-owned and worker-controlled enterprises, I suggest you look up Richard Wolff. That's two F's, W-O-L-F-F, Richard Wolff. He has a lot of good content online. He has a lot of good content on YouTube. 
and he's written a book called Democracy at Work. And one thing Richard Wolff will point out is that we're supposed to believe in democracy, and yet when you go to work, you leave your democratic rights at the door. Apparently, we don't believe in democracy in America when it comes to the workplace. But worker-owned and worker-controlled enterprises should be supported and promoted because it's good for everyone concerned. I would argue that worker-owned enterprises are more likely, for example, to make positive decisions for the environment. Whereas if an enterprise is not worker-controlled, then it's just work, it's controlled by the people, by the investors who just want to extract profit from the organization. Quite often you're dealing with absentee investors. In fact, most of us work for absentee investors. According to Richard Wolff, who is an economist, the Fortune 500, that is the 500 largest corporations, control two-thirds of the economy. So if that's true, two-thirds of the economy is working for large corporations and the people who own them are absentee investors. They know nothing about the community. They know nothing about the workers. They know little, as, as little as they want to know about in, any environmental issues that are going on. And another thing about an investor-owned enterprise, which is different, which is the opposite of a worker-owned enterprise, but an investor-owned enterprise is solely focused on profit. So you go to work every day and you're helping somebody else make a profit and your work, your day-to-day work, is solely for the purpose of making a profit. I would argue that that's why most people don't get a lot of fulfillment out of their work. They do it for a paycheck, whereas with a worker-owned enterprise, you're more likely to have input into the decisions. You're more likely to have a voice in how the enterprise is run. You're more likely to have a voice in what you are trying to create. So there's more of a sense of ownership and more of a sense of having a personal stake in the success of the enterprise. And people can differ about whether that's the best way to do things or not. But we won't really know until we give worker-owned enterprises a chance. There are successful worker-owned enterprises in America and especially There's a big, successful worker-owned enterprise in Spain called Mondragon. They make appliances. Very large, very successful worker-owned enterprise. So, for example, one thing you can do in a worker-owned enterprise is that, let's say, business goes down for some reason. Now, a for-profit enterprise is going to be quick to lay people off when sales go down. But one thing Mondragon does is that instead of laying people off, they might decide to cut their hours back by two hours per week so that the enterprise can remain viable and everybody keeps on working. Don't you think that would be good for the morale of the organization? So a worker-owned enterprise is naturally going to do business in a way that benefits the workers instead of being solely focused on profit. Let's go on to item I. 
under principle number three. We will ensure workers' democratic control over the use of technological innovation and automation at work. So I'm going to describe a problem that exists in our economy today and has always existed. And people who believe that for-profit enterprises are the only way to go are going to think, well, that's the way it has to be. But I will argue that that's not the way it has to be. What I'm going to describe is something called technological unemployment. You know, there's an interesting legend in American culture about technological unemployment. Remember the story of John Henry? So John Henry was a miner. He worked in the mines. And this goes back to the 1800s. And originally, all mine work was manual labor. And then, but then they brought in this machine that was probably a steam-powered machine. And John Henry was the best worker in the mine, the strongest worker, the best worker in the mine. And he challenged, he said he could keep up with that machine. But as the story goes, the machine was too much for John Henry to keep up with. So that story teaches a lesson. Now the story of John Henry, I must have heard it in elementary school. And I remember a picture of John Henry with a sledgehammer in each hand. He was strong and he was really going at it, but he couldn't keep up with the machine. So I think this story teaches a lesson that is not a valid lesson. It's not the way that it has to be. In the story of John Henry, we are, of course, dealing with a for-profit enterprise in which the profits of the company are the sole determining consideration. Everything you see around you exists only because a company could sell it at a profit. But quite often for a company to sell something at a profit, they have to exploit two things. They have to exploit the environment and they have to exploit their workers. We have products that are made by slave labor in other countries. In fact, slave labor exists in the United States. Slave labor exists in the prisons and slave labor exists in many of our farms. So in today's economy, almost without exception, a company can sell a product profitably only by exploitation of labor and the environment. But the DSA's Green New Deal says here, we will ensure workers' democratic control over the use of technological innovation and automation at work. So the workers in a factory, for example, get to vote over how technological innovation will be applied. And because they get to vote, they will, of course, explore possibilities such that technology need not result in unemployment. They may come up with other product lines, or they may argue that at the end of the day, a certain technological innovation or automation cannot be applied without exploitation of labor or the environment, and the workers may vote to not go along with a certain application of technology. Now, here's something else about technology. Let's visit one of the... Uh, I, you know, we're, we're saturated in our culture with a devotion to a religion of the free market. I call it the free market fairy tale because I don't believe it anymore. And I used to be an ardent advocate of the free market. I was a so-called conservative for most of my life until recently. 
Now I see the so-called free market as something like the tooth fairy. You get to a point where it doesn't make sense anymore. So here's one thing that does not make sense about uh, the free market fairy tale that we're told. So we are told that the free market is the engine of economic growth and it's also the engine of innovation. But what that claim ignores is the idea that most technology exists because government invested heavily in research. I did one or two entire episodes on this and they were called spin-off the episode is called spin-off technologies. Email me at info at the report.net if you want me to send you a playlist of those episodes. But let's take computer technology for example. A few years back I read the biography of Steve Jobs. And what that biography serves to do, like most biographies in the mainstream, is that it, it lionizes an establishment hero. So the biography of Steve Jobs lionizes Steve Jobs. It makes him look like a larger-than-life character, and don't we owe so much to Steve Jobs? And Steve Jobs was an innovator. But Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in, invented and marketed the personal computer starting in about 1975. What the story of Steve Jobs ignores is that personal computers existed because the government had been doing research into computer technology for at least 30 years, 35 years. So during World War II, they had these primitive electronic computers because of government investment. And these early computers were not marketable, but the government kept on investing in them. The earliest computers weighed several tons, and unlike the computers that we have today, which are powered by microchips, the circuits in these large computers were vacuum tubes, and these computers took up entire rooms, large rooms, but the government kept on investing in them. During the 60s, some of these large computers were marketable to very large companies. And then the microchip was invented because of government research. And then by the 70s, we had, a micro, we had microchip-powered computers. And it was finally at a point where, there was, where a, an entrepreneur could take this technology and turn it into a marketable machine. If the government had not invested in, re in research in computer technology, you would never have heard the name of Steve Jobs or Steve Wozniak. The cell phone that you have today has microchips in it, which is a result of government research. The electronic signals go to cell towers, which are a result of government research in telecommunications technology for decades before it was marketable. The software in the uh, cell phones and other computer devices was developed by the government. So the, the software, such as things like a computer protocol called TCPIP, was a result of government research. So what I'm saying is that taxpayers like you and me and our parents and our grandparents paid for the development of computer technology. The same is true for most of our medical technology. The same is true for something called containerization, which was originally developed for use by the Navy. 
and then once the Navy developed it, it could then be used by large shipping companies. Much of the research that developed the fossil fuel industry was a result, has been a result of government research. Much of the research that resulted in passenger airliners is a result of government research. So you have companies like Boeing and McDonnell Douglas that owe their entire existence not only to government-funded research, but also to procurement. Procurement is when the government buys something. So Boeing and McDonnell Douglas have planes to sell to the government and to private companies because the government funded research and then bought the planes from these private companies. So from an economic standpoint, the way this works is that the taxpayer pays for the research, the taxpayer pays, pays for the procurement, and then these technologies are just handed over to for-profit companies, and guess who keeps the profits? The shareholders keep the profits. Now, two-thirds of, of shares are owned by the top 1%. So the primary beneficiary of this government-funded research is the 1% who owns two-thirds of all the shares. This results in something that I call upward wealth redistribution. So my conservative and libertarian friends complain about wealth redistribution downwards. They complain about programs like a minimum wage or like pro-union laws. And they complain about progressive taxation, which means that the higher income earners and the wealthy corporations, if we had a progressive tax system, would pay a higher percentage tax than the lower incomes. But downward wealth redistribution is entirely fair if you consider that our system systematically and on a large scale redistributes wealth upwards. So how did we get started on this tangent? What were we talking about when we went down this long path about technological innovation? What we're talking about is that we should rethink the idea that technological innovation should result in unemployment. We should rethink the idea that technological innovation is a product of the free market. And that is just one of many justifications for the idea that workers should have democratic control over the use of technological innovation and automation at work. Now, let's go to the last item, item J, under the third principle of DSA's version of the Green New Deal. Item J says, we will reduce the work week and guarantee substantial paid parental leave, and vacation time for all workers. This is an example of saving capitalism from itself. I mean, I, th I think we need to really rethink whether we need capitalism, but to the extent that we have any capitalism at all, here's a problem with capitalism. The problem with capitalism is that any individual company wants to pay workers as little as possible. But then each individual company benefits from a society where people are well-paid and well-educated and healthy. So individual capitalist enterprises want to benefit from education and health and good pay for their consumers. But 
So they want to benefit from all that, but they don't want to pay for it. So, for example, the businesses in our town would benefit if all workers had a living wage because those workers could take that living wage and spend it in our local businesses. Now, they're not going to spend all their income in local businesses, but they're going to have more to spend if they have a living wage. Also, if there is a living wage, less of the money would be drained out of our local economy and sent to absentee investors. A good economy results from educated, healthy workers who are paid a living wage. Now, let's look at this idea of paid parental leave. Now, if parents don't have paid parental leave, then what we're saying is that parents should bear the entire burden of parenting. If you decide to have a child, it's on you. But yet society benefits from healthy children who get to spend a fair amount of time with their parents. So there's a lot to be said for paid parental leave. And there's a lot to be said for paid vacation time for all workers. Now let's look at guiding principle number four of DSA's Green New Deal. Guiding principle number four starts off like this. We're going to decommodify survival by guaranteeing living wages, health care, child care, housing, food, water, energy, public transit, a healthy environment, and other necessities for all. I really like this idea of decommodifying survival. The idea is that you should not have to be, have to pay in order to survive. It, the, the burden of survival should not be entirely on the individual. We live in the wealthiest country in world history, and yet an astonishing portion of our populace lives in poverty or near the poverty line or just above the poverty line. I don't have the figures in front of me, but I've heard figures on the order of 40 or 50 percent are at or near the poverty line. And yet there is an increasing amount of wealth that is held by the billionaire class, and there's an increasing amount of wealth that is owned and controlled by large corporations. So the wealth that our country has is not enjoyed by the vast majority. I like the way Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez puts this when she says, she answers the question, what is socialism? Why, should, why does she call herself a democratic socialist? And her response to that is that in a, in a healthy, modern America, people should not be too poor to survive. In a healthy, modern America, too, um, people should not be too poor to survive. But the mindset and the philosophy that is imposed upon us is the philosophy that says, if people's needs are taken care of, they won't work. Well, that is a brutal and inaccurate assessment. It is a brutal and flawed philosophy. There was a, a study that was done in a Canadian town where each person was given a... a um, a basic income, a guaranteed basic income. And all Green New Deals are going to have the universal basic income as a component of the plan. Now, in this Canadian town, where for four years people had a guaranteed income, 
nobody worked less. Correction, only a few types of people worked less, notably new parents worked less and students worked less. And anybody who's ever been a new parent knows that having a baby is a lot of work. And anybody who's ever been in school knows that school is a lot of work. So students and new parents were working, but they were doing unpaid work that is very valuable to society and very meritorious. I've just got about half a minute left. I'd like to leave you with something to think about. Mainly, I want to say that if we are going to survive, let alone thrive, we need to rethink everything. Not least of all, we need to rethink whether we want to live under what I call the free market fraud or whether we want to have a society in which everyone can prosper. That's all the time we have. I hope you've enjoyed this. Have a great day. Hope to see you soon.